What's up, my churchies? Dominion Fire 360 is on. Million here with you, M-I-L-L-I-A-N, your ministry provocateur, iconoclast, firebrand, and resident heretic here at Dominion Fire. And first off, before we get into today's interview, I need to say a huge thank you to you guys because the last program, Seven Days with a Witch, within four days broke the all-time record for listens and downloads on SoundCloud for our channel. So thank you so much for that. And... It's continuing to run away with the numbers, but today's show, I have a feeling, is going to be right in the same ballpark, and I want to ask you once again that once you get a hold of this, to please share this, post it in Facebook groups, Twitter, anywhere you could think of, download it, burn it on CDs, and go hand it out to people at yoga studios, whatever you're doing. Get this message out, because when we put this together, we were talking about what our goals and intentions were. And what we were talking about is breaking this altar once and for all, because this is something that has become ubiquitous, not only in our society, but Western culture all around the world. And this is something that I don't think is very good or healthy for people, especially Christians in general, when when I bring this up. And we want this altar broken. I want this to be a nail in the coffin once and for all to start breaking. I want to red pill people out of this is what I'm trying to, to get at you here. So, You've been waiting for this. You've been asking questions. Thank you all for your input. Let's roll. It's time. Joining me today is an amazing young lady. This is Karina Kraft, who is joining us from uh, Norfolk, Virginia, if I remember correctly. And she has a huge background and experience in yoga and in Eastern medicine and Asian influence kind of things like this. All the stuff that we hear about in churches all the time and all these things that people are always coming up against. And one of the problems that we have in the body, and I say this all the time on the vlog and on the show, is that we always talk about don't do this, but we never tell you why. Or we teach you this cool thing that can happen in our faith, but we never show you how to do it. Today, we're giving you the inside baseball. We're unpacking this thing once and for all, and we're going to lay it out for you. And I want you guys to listen, make a decision, and I think you're going to make the right one after you hear this. All right, so let's go to the phones. Karina, welcome to Dominion Fire 360. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me, Millie, and I'm very pleased to be on your show. You know this is going to be a good one, right? We're we're gonna we're gonna break things open here. So yeah, let's do this. Okay, so I'm gonna step out of the way because I've yap yapped enough here. I want you to please open the show today with telling the listening audience about you, your background, experience, and how you got into all this. So take it away. Okay. Well, I practiced uh, yoga, a very secular version of yoga, for about ten years. And I did that because I was phasing out of a dance career, and I wanted a type of movement system that was as challenging and elegant and lyrical as dance had been. So I got certified in yoga, and I chose, P.S., I'm a Christian, and I was a Christian at the time. Uh, I chose the most secular certification organization that I could find at the time. This was around the year 2000. And it happened to be Yoga Fit, which is a gym giant, um, uh, basically a secular provider of yoga in the United States and abroad. And at that time, uh, in the early 2000s, it was a Western maverick. It had um, basically vaunted itself as a demystified form of yoga. So it was totally non-Hindu. It had been stripped of all of the Hindu philosophy And it was presented uh, primarily as great exercise. So when I got my training, um, the emphasis was totally on myology and kinesiology, so the study of muscles and the study of movement. 
And everything that was objectionable in my mind had been gutted. So there was no um, meditation or chanting or references to Hindu philosophy or Kirtan music um, or, you know, Eastern statuary or the burning of incense or any such thing. No references to their um, esoteric physiology, you know, the prana and kundalini and so on. It was exercise science all the way. And I loved it. And um, according to fitness industry guidelines, I focused on things like, you know, proper alignment, proper progression, modifications for mixed level classes, special populations, safety precautions, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And I taught only in secular venues. I taught uh, at the Virginia Beach Municipal Recreation Centers in my area. I taught at a Norfolk YMCA. I taught at Bally Total Fitness, which was a huge national gym chain, now um, no longer in existence. They went bankrupt. And I also taught at a community college, Tidewater Community College, as an adjunct instructor. Uh, the students there were required to have one semester of PE f- to fulfill an associate's requirement. Uh, So I enjoyed the practice. I found it physically therapeutic, um, emotionally cathartic, and in the privacy of my own home, I offered that practice up to Jesus as a type of worship. So that's the background that I come from. Okay, so at this point, you have a great deal of experience, and as you were teaching and as you were doing this, you were creating syllabi for classes, you were choreographing classes for yoga, and you were really kind of studying into the backgrounds and the meanings. Is, is that correct? No, actually, I was not exploring the background. Um, I knew that it was associated with Hinduism, and I wanted to have absolutely nothing to do with that. So I completely shunned, uh, you know, the origin, uh, the philosophy, the uh, esoteric energy paradigm, what I did was I, I focused on the, the westernized appropriation, or should I say misappropriation of the practice. So I looked only at the physical, and that's how I would teach my classes. I just want to make sure we have the right timeline here. So you're Christian at the time, you're doing this in a secular way, as you said. Now, along the way, something kind of crazy happened and your mind started to change about this. So let's lay out what was sort of the watershed or a seminal moment where you started kind of wising up to what was happening here. Okay. Um, basically I was experiencing a lot of career obstacles and um, felt a general level of frustration in my life and a kind of ill-defined oppression. And so I went to the Lord in prayer about it. I didn't know what was wrong. And I said to him, you know, if I'm doing something wrong, please show me. And that turned out to be my ticket to freedom. And then I just went about my business, and uh, I serve on a prayer ministry team at my church. So I was continuing to get equipped to do ministry, and I happened to attend an inner healing and deliverance workshop. And what happened was I got delivered of a demon of oriental medicine in that workshop, And the minister proceeded to tell me that yoga was also demonic. And so what happened was the one epic deliverance precipitated the other. And so I'll I'll explain to you um, a little bit about 
the uh, deliverance from a demon of oriental medicine. Would you like to hear that? <laughs> Before, Yes, I do. Before we go into that, I just want to clarify one thing. Now, it was uh, the supernatural backing behind it was that this minister called out a word of knowledge on you. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Tell us about that first and then break it down for us. Okay. Very good. So in this particular inner healing and deliverance workshop, um, it was very action-oriented, and I volunteered as a demonstration subject. So the deliverance minister basically did a standard intake before actually doing a deliverance. He wanted to see if I had any entry points for the demonic, and he asked me, um, you know, common questions. Did I have any physical abuse in my background, any emotional abuse, verbal abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, that sort of thing. Uh, was my family involved in false religions or the occult? And as he was you know, asking me these questions, all of a sudden he had this outstanding word of knowledge, um, and it was this. He said, I'm getting a word of knowledge, and it is the word shiatsu. Does that mean anything to you? Well, I was totally stunned. It was like he had pulled this pink rabbit out of a black top hat, and it happened to be my pink rabbit. Uh, he was, I said, yes, this means a whole lot to me. I happen to be a subject matter expert on shiatsu. I've, I've taught it for the last 10 years. I've taught it at a local trade school. Um, I have a textbook published on it by a fairly prestigious academic publisher, and um, I've, I've loved it. You know, what's, what's wrong with shiatsu? And then he said to me, well, it's demonic. And I went, you've got to be kidding me. You know, just invested the last 10 years of my life in this stuff. And uh, he said, no. Would you like to probe and see whether or not you have a demon of shiatsu? And I thought, oh, well, you have, you know, you've had an outstanding word of knowledge. I'm extremely impressed. I'm still skeptical. So yes, I'm willing to probe for the demon, but um, I need to see a dramatic demonic manifestation in order to believe. Because like I said, I've invested the last 10 years of my life in this practice, and I'm not, not just going to jettison it for a light cause. So he said, okay, well, let's go ahead and probe. So in a um, session with other uh, student observers taking notes, he started to invoke this demon, and at first nothing happened. And then as he continued to invoke, um, I felt this really weird, queasy, whirling sensation around my head. It almost felt like a swirling electromagnetic force field. And I stopped and I told him about it. I said, this is what I'm experiencing. And he said, well, are you convinced? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I know myself. You know, I know I've got a strong, rational intellect when you leave town, I'm going to ponder this, and I'm going to think it was you know, attributable to something else, like I had too much coffee, I was sleep-deprived, I was nervous about the deliverance, this was the power of suggestion, yada, yada. I said, no, you really, I need to see something really dramatic. And he said, okay, let's keep uh, pursuing this. So he continued to invoke this demon. And then, all of a sudden, I felt my face seize up. And it was as if um, this expression registered on my face like a kabuki mask of a samurai warrior. I could feel my eyes bugging out. I could feel my jaw clenching. And it was this sort of fierce expression, you know, murder sublimated into art. And then uh, my abdomen started pumping in and out. And I was uh, 
involuntarily engaging in this like deep diaphragmatic breathing to these loud sounds of like vacuuming inhalations and horse wheezing exhalations. And I was like, whoa. And then my right hand started slapping my right thigh to the point of stinging over and over and over again. And then my left foot started stomping like a, like a homesteader having a tantrum. And then he looked at me and he said, now are you convinced? And I went, Dag, I cannot believe this. Yes, yes, I'm convinced. It, it feels like there's someone sitting at the control panel of my being and pushing all of these buttons, um, you know, and causing me to perform involuntary and voluntary um, movements that, that I have no control over. So um, he cast the demon out. And then at the very end of the session, he said, P.S., yoga, the yoga that you practice that you've also told me about, that also is demonic. And that was a word of knowledge too, right? Because you didn't mention anything about No, that. I think he had had, he, I suspect he'd had prior experience with that. So he just kind of knew the, the fingerprint of it, basically. Yeah, I, you know, I assume he'd had a lot of experience as an exorcist, really. And so he probably had encountered that previously. Before we jump into the yoga thing, my apologies. I just want to clarify one quick side question and then we'll jump right back. So you said shihatsu, which is a form of massage. Now, for listeners that may have the, this question, is all massage a problem or is it shihatsu proper? Like if I rub, rub my wife's shoulders, am I casting her into hell or something? <laughs> or is it, you know, it's like you're on a sports team and they're like working a muscle or something. Are you in trouble? Like what, what's the quick side <laughs> question? You know what I'm saying? I, I'm worried now. <laughs> well, don't be too worried. No, no, there are like all things there, there is, you know, the legitimate and the illegitimate, the valid and the invalid. So Western styles of massage, your classic is um, Swedish, uh, Okay, sports massage, okay. What I'm talking about is Asian modalities. So a lot of these um, Asian forms of body work that are based on the Chinese medical model. The issue here is the traditional Chinese medical model. It's based on this mysterious thing called qi. Uh, this means it's referring to a universal vital energy or life force that we can purportedly harness for our own benefit. Well, there is no such thing. We tend to, in the West, look at that medical model and say, oh, what they're talking about is bioelectricity or biomagnetism. And they're not. They're talking about something entirely different. They're actually talking about spirit, okay? So I, when I first embarked on this practice, I had no idea. But shiatsu is a Japanese form of body work that is based on traditional Chinese medicine, the Japanese basically um, adopted and adapted the Chinese medical model sometime around 700 AD when the Japanese and Chinese were engaged in mutual diplomatic trading missions. Um, so this is uh, an energy model of the human body. It's metaphysical in philosophy, and because it's metaphysical and not based in uh, medical science, it enlists the help of the spirit realm. Okay, that's the best way that I can explain it in a short way. Just so the listeners know, massage, as you were saying, is not necessarily bad. Just watch the modalities behind it, number one. Uh, so at this point, we know that there was a deliverance from a what you call a spirit of oriental medicine. It's just sort of the term you gave it. And now this minister calls out to you that yoga is a problem. So let's pick up there. 
Okay. Yeah, so needless to say, I was incredibly disturbed by this possibility that the yoga that I had also been practicing for 10 years was equally demonic um, because I had had good intentions, obviously, and a clear conscience, and I had never had any paranormal experiences doing yoga. So when I heard, you know, the objections of other Christians, um, you know, and warnings about this being a form of idolatry and demonic, I just dismissed them as inapplicable to me because I knew in my heart that um, I was doing great exercise and in the privacy of my own home, I was offering it up with um, the purest of intention and a clear conscience to Jesus. So how could it be wrong? So, but I had been shattered enough by this um, revelation that I had a demon of oriental medicine that I was willing to, to investigate further. In fact, I felt very alarmed. And so I decided to fast, and then I asked the Lord to show me, to confirm what this minister had said. Uh, and then I was prepared to actually do a self-deliverance because he was leaving town, and I didn't know anyone else in the area who could do deliverance. So the Lord gave me a dream, and this dream was very revelatory. It basically exposed the nature of yoga. So I'm going to share with you the dream. All right, in this dream, um, it's two parts, by the way. The first part, I'm in a gym, and in the second part, I'm in my office, in my home. So in the first part, I'm in a gym. I'm walking through this athletic club. This is basically the venue where I frequently taught yoga because I taught gym yoga. And I'm passing by this section in the gym that's like a warm-up, cool-down stretch section. And there's a woman lying on a yoga mat. Now, she's not dressed in athletic gear. She's not dressed in leotards and tights or anything. She's dressed in street clothes, and which is odd. It's highly irregular. And she looks at me really intently, and she says, I live here. And I thought to myself, well, that's strange. You're strange. <laughs> I kept passing by. And then I was walking by a free weight section where there's dumbbells and barbells and so on. And I saw this Herculean bodybuilder doing a military press. He was, his back was to me and he was performing a military press and his muscles were like uber hypertrophied. You know, they were gnarly. They were bulging and puckering obscenely. And I thought, man, glad I don't have to massage that guy. All right. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then at that point, the scene changed and I was in my office, in my own home. Now, this is the place where I typically prepared uh, class materials to teach yoga. You know, I would prepare syllabi, quizzes, um, handouts, that sort of thing. And as I entered into the office, um, I lit something inside of a brass bowl. It was something, it was a substance like incense or marijuana. And the smoke ascended um, in these ribbon-like curls. And I felt that this was sort of a mystical ritual. And it had this like mood-altering, mind-bending, reality-shifting effect. And I looked out the window, glanced out the window into my backyard, and this, it was a nighttime, all right? And I see this huge inflatable phosphorescent altar to Hindu deities. And right next to it is this big banqueting table with a place setting reserved just for me. Uh, so I was seized with alarm, and I thought, I want this stuff cleared off of my property right now. And as soon as I had that thought, out of nowhere, 
this um, New Year's, like the Chinese New Year's dragon appeared. It was like a windsock um, or like a kite, and it flew right up to the window and rattled its head menacingly at me. And then I pounded on the glass with my hands, and I was like yelling profanities at it and commanding it to go, and it didn't budge. And then finally I screamed, Jesus, Jesus, several times, and it withdrew. And I woke up. And then the Lord gave me uh, basically an interpretation for the dream. And it was this. So the, the gym scene portion of the dream introduces the spirit behind yoga through the two encounters that I have. One was the woman on the yoga mat, and the other one was the bodybuilder. And the woman declares, I live here. I live in the gym. I live on the yoga mat. And I live in you. And that uh, statement was basically the statement of the demon. And it does, you know, it does agree with scripture. Um, I think in the book of Matthew around chapter 12, Jesus, you know, describes demons as very possessive territorial spirits uh, that have an ownership claim on their host. And they refer to the person that they are inhabiting as my house, my house. So for the woman to say, I live here, that was very much, um, in line with the, you know, the, the possessive nature of these spirits. And then the bodybuilder basically represents the strong man of yoga. Uh, and when Jesus is teaching about deliverance, he, he likens uh, the demonic to a strong man whose house must be plundered. In other words, the hostage must be released. So this is sort of contextualizing deliverance ministry is like a turf war or an eviction proceeding where you're, you're evicting an illegal squatter. Okay, part two of my um, dream, this is where I'm in the office, reveals the nature of yoga as kind of this mind-altering ritual worship, you know, through the burning of incense or pot. And then, of course, the Hindu altar is, um, you know, explains itself. The banqueting table is really intriguing. Uh, that indicates that yoga is basically communion or fellowship with the Hindu deities. And the um, dragon represents Satan in scripture. The Lord showed me regarding um, the banqueting table, he showed me a verse from Corinthians chapter 10. This is the first book of Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read it right here because it's very relevant, especially for Jews and Christians who are practicing yoga as worship to either Jesus or Adonai. It's actually dual communion or dual fellowship. All right, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the thing which the Gentiles, the pagans, sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So this was a scripture that the Holy Spirit highlighted to me as explaining the banqueting table that I saw in my dream. He was basically telling me, you're engaged in dual communion, dual fellowship. You're not just drinking my cup. You're not just sitting at my table, but you're also drinking a demonic cup. You're sitting you're at a demonic table. You're double dipping over there. <laughs> double dipping. Double dipping, sweetheart. 
Yeah. Sorry to interrupt well, that. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 fine. Yeah, so they, actually I'm kind of closed with that dream and the interpretation. Well, let me ask a question, a little side question as we do. When you came to the part about the incense and so on and so forth, now here's my question, side question, and we'll come back. Um, burning incense in general, bad thing. Or like in my house, I like essential oils. I like the way they smell. That's all it means to me. It smells nice. I like it. Bad thing, good thing. Where do we stand on that? Oh, no problem. I mean, I I think with the incense, that is a, um, it's like prayer or fasting. It depends on to whom and for whom you're doing it. The Bible is full of uh, incense preparation, special perfumes for the Lord. I mean, the Old Testament has actually a recipe, I think, uh, for anointing oil. And there's and, and incense is likened to a number of things, not just worship, but also intercession of the saints. So that's legitimate. But, it, you know, there are other cultures and other religions that use incense directed toward other gods. And in the case of my dream, it was just indicating that you're not just engaged in a fitness program here, honey. Um, you are actually engaged in worship. Incense is symbolic of worship. Um, so that's all I have to say about that, really. Excellent. Okay. So just for our listeners, so we're clear on that as we move forward. Now, at this point, so we have you with um, where your background was, where your uh, ministry encounter was with this particular, uh, the Oriental Medicine Demon. Now, listeners, let me throw this out at you quick. Um, we're talking about the possibility of doing another edition of this program uh, with Karina, where we talk about the Oriental medicine side of things, which is a little different than this and all like the practices that come with that. If you'd like that, please leave a message on either the Facebook or email us somewhere on the socials. We It's easy to find us. If you want to hear that too, drop us a line and we'll start planning that. So quick, uh, quick announcement and let's get back into this. Now, you started at that point after you had that dream. Now you started uh, the self-deliverance with this yoga spirit. So how did how'd that all come together? Okay. Uh, first of all, I woke up um, freaked out, and I was absolutely convinced at that point because God had given me the revelatory dream and the interpretation. I was convinced that I really was dealing with a demon of yoga. And I didn't have any ministry to resort to, so I thought, well, you know, when Jesus said you can cast out demons, he didn't um, qualify or limit it to you can only cast out demons out of other people. I thought, well, you know, I'm desperate enough. I think I'm going to just cast this thing out of myself. And I figured if he was kind enough to show me that I had a demon, he'd also empower me to evict it. So I purged my office, and this was a pretty big deal for me. I basically threw out thousands of dollars worth of yoga books and uh, videos and DVDs, and, including uh, a nice video of myself that I had made for purposes of a promotion at Bally Total Fitness. I wanted to move into a master trainer position, so I was like throwing out my own image. Um, and then, let me see, I tore up all of my certificates, my certifications to practice yoga. I had three certifications, three levels of yoga fit. And when I did that, there was something inside of me that really balked. Like I felt an internal revolt and I knew, ah, that's the, that's the demon. That's got to be the demon. Then I set up a full length mirror because I wanted to observe any kind of demonic manifestation. And I also uh, brought out a notepad because I wanted to take notes uh, and I was going to interrogate this thing, 
And basically, I would ask it a question and then it would respond in my mind. All right. So what I'm going to share with you right now is kind of um, relics of the notes that I had taken from that session. So I commanded this thing to manifest in the name of Jesus under pain of punishment if it didn't. And it said to me, I will not. And then I asked, I said, do I have authority over you? And it said, yes. But then it backpedaled and said, he's not as powerful as I am. And the demon was referring to Jesus. And I said, you are mistaken. Then right then at that very juncture, I felt this pleasurable surge of energy erupt from below and go all the way up my body um, to the crown of my head. And it felt like this full body rush and my flesh lit up like a thousand pinpoints of light. And I was like tingling all over. And, uh, I, you know, it's like I'd never experienced anything that sensual and that titillating in practice. If I had, I would have been suspicious. And I recognized this as Kundalini, a Kundalini experience. Um, I had heard about Kundalini, but I had never had such an experience. So the demon was basically inducing this experience and vaunting its power. And let me just add that I had no reason to feel pleasure in the moment. I had been fasting, and I was furious, furious that I had like 10 years of my life hijacked by this entity. And then right after that, this snake-like expression settled on my face, like my face distorted into, looked like a snake. I'm not saying I transmogrified into a snake, but it kind of looked like a snake. Um, Then I commanded it to tell me the chief lie that it tells Christians to induce them to practice yoga. And it said, I'm going to quote here, I'm not really spiritual. There's nothing spiritual about me. I'm just physical. I am a health practice, an exercise system. I do good. I help them lose weight. I make them flexible and strong. I give them balance. I improve their health and calm their mind. So this is what it told me. And then I said, uh, I command you to tell me the chief lie that you tell unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus. What, what kind of lie do you tell them to um, seduce them into practice? And it said, I raise their power level. I improve their sex life. I give them control over their lives. They can have cities. Uh, Cities are basically supernatural powers in the Hindu religion. Uh, They can have cities like levitation, teleportation, telekinesis, telepathy. And as soon as it said that, I was like, oh, wait a minute here. Are you associated with divination or psychic power, you know, uh, like clairvoyance and clairaudience and fortune telling? And it said, yes. And then I, and then I asked it, are you a Python spirit? Because the, the book of Acts refers to um, a Python spirit. There's, a, there's an episode in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul encounters a slave girl who has a spirit of divination or fortune telling. And he winds up casting that spirit out and then she can't tell fortunes anymore. And it, it said, yes. I am a Python spirit. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Okay, I didn't know this at the time because I'd never read any um, background literature uh, on yoga. I never read any yoga philosophy books. But in the years following, as I started to do research to understand how I got demonized, I came across a couple of books that totally substantiated this demon's claim that, number one, 
Uh, it was a snake spirit. And number two, it could confer occult powers. And the first text is called the Yoga Sutras. This is like a, a classic in um, Hindu literature. It's a yoga treatise that dates all the way back to 250 AD. And it has an entire chapter dedicated to developing occult powers through yogic meditation. You know, so, I mean, bizarre stuff, too. Like, you can enter other people's bodies. Uh, there's a power of minification where you shrink down into a microdot. There's a power of maxification where you, um, you know, become enormously huge. Uh, just all these different, you can talk to animals, on and on it goes. And the uh, author of this text is a sage called Patanjali, who purportedly lived for several centuries and what's very strange about this sage is that he was a hybrid being. He was half man, half snake. Uh, actually, he was supposed to be, according to a myth, of the snake of infinity that transformed itself into a man in order to communicate with mankind. And if you see different illustrations and statuaries of this sage Patanjali, he's depicted as having the head and torso of a man and the lower body or tail of a snake. So that was one, one text that I'd never heard of that confirmed what the, what the demon said. And then there was another one. It's the original Garaksa Sataka. And this is a yoga manual that um, was written around 1400. So we're talking like the late medieval period. And this is the one that delves into um, esoteric yogic physiology. And it describes the spiritual energy that is inherent in yoga as a snake. And all the yoga practices, yogic meditation, um, yogic breathing exercises, exercises, yogic postures, they're all designed to uh, awaken and arouse and activate this dormant, hibernating snake that is supposed to be resting in coiled repose right at the base of the spine. And so when you do yoga, um, this this thing gets activated, it enters this central energy channel in your body, according to this medical model, and it travels from the lowest energy center right at the base of the spine to the highest energy center at the crown of the head and out through the crown of the head. And that event is associated with transcendence or enlightenment or liberation from reincarnation. So this is what I have to say. The, the geyser-like sensations that I experienced when this demon manifested um, followed the path exactly of this snake. You know, it went from the base of my torso up to the crown of my head, and it was a shooting-like uh, sensation. So my grand conclusion is that the kundalini experiences that people are having are not the result of a spiritual energy, but they are the machinations of a spirit. They're, they are basically induced by a demon. All right, so now at this point, you're having this experience. So now what happens in this self-deliverance that you have? Well, I cast it out, and then I uh, purged. Did it fight you a lot? Like, was it a struggle to get that out, or how did you actually get that out of you? No, I mean, I just commanded it to go, and then I wound up belching a lot. Um, so that was, I mean... I, there are probably different ways that people manifest, but I, I actually did set a, um, what do you call it, a, a term or condition of engagement. And I said, 
I am not vomiting. You are not going to induce me to vomit. I forbid you to induce me to vomit or to, you know, do anything outrageous. So it just basically belched on the way out. Interesting. Okay, so at this point now this thing is gone. And what was sort of your initial thinking at this point? Because after you've been through this, because we've all been through it in some capacity or I've ministered it, you know, your mind goes 100 miles an hour. So how are you feeling in the moment after this happened? Do you know what? It's been too long for me to remember that. Um, But I do know that um, I was furious and that fury was a good thing. Uh, it was a righteous indignation, and it basically drove me to study. Uh, it, it drove me to do research, and it made me feel like I have got to share this with other people because I'm, I need to see poetic justice. I want, you know, I want God to deal with this thing because it's a major Trojan horse. You know, We think that we're doing exercise and it's religion in disguise and it comes with spiritual attachments. So uh, the years following, I basically read in the scripture and sought God and his counsel and I started reading yoga philosophy. And so some of the things I'm going to share with you are revelation that the Holy Spirit gave me and also what I've learned um, by studying the practice with open eyes, you know, the veil had been removed so I could see better. Now let, let's pivot on this one now because, okay, now we have the background, what you've done, what you've experienced, the uh, ministry, supernatural side of it, your little battle with the demon that you had there and won, which is awesome. Uh, but now we go into, let, let's just get right into it. Now, listeners, we sort of had to circle the airport a little bit because I wanted you to have a full understanding of what was happening here. Now we're going to start landing this plane. We're going to bring it in with actual yoga. Now, uh, first question I'm going to ask, and then you can run from there is, uh, let's start at the absolute beginning. The word yoga, what does it mean? Um, yoga is means to yoke, and it's referring to union or communion with the divine. Now, because this practice originated in India, it means communion or union with the Hindu divine. And that could be um, any, that could be a lot of different entities because Hinduism is an extremely complex religion. It's both polytheistic and monistic. So they have a whole pantheon of deities and they have something called a, their supreme reality, which is cosmic consciousness or cosmic being. And the individual uh, gods of the Hindu pantheon are kind of like mediators. They're, they're, um, they're entry points for cosmic consciousness or cosmic being. Okay. So from there, uh, we have uh, the, the funny thing may have cut out a little bit. It was the word union or unity with God or a God in the uh, Hindu pantheon. And from here, let's start with kind of the history. Where did this come from? Lay the whole case out for us for anybody listening, Christian yoga practitioners. Hey, make the case for us. Let's have it. Okay. Well, let me share with you the most important revelation that I got um, after my demon, you know, demonization and deliverance. And that is the revelation that origin matters. And origin is about authorship, ownership, and rights of possession and control. Now, let me um, backtrack a little bit. There's a big debate out there right now um, in the yoga field. And the question, the central question is, who owns yoga? Because Obviously, whoever owns it can dictate what it is. 
So if the Indians own it, it's Hindu worship. If the Westerners own it, it's secular, it's exercise. If Christians own it, it's sacred worship to Jesus. If Jews own it, it's sacred worship to Adonai. Um, But I say this, this is what the Holy Spirit showed me. Yoga is not just a human invention. It is a collaborative work between human beings and spirit beings. Okay, so way back um, in ancient times in India, you have these rishis, these forest philosophers, and they sought spiritual experiences. Specifically, they wanted to transcend the world and self. Um, they, They wanted to escape suffering that's associated with being in the world. And so... Um, whenever a human being seeks a spiritual experience, it is basically seeking a spirit being, right? The human being is dissatisfied or malcontent with its, the state or condition of its own spirit. So it is enlisting the help of another spirit to attain you know, a different level of experience. Um, so... Consequently, yoga is um, a collaborative work. Spirit beings were involved in the creation of the practice. They inspired the practice. And um, when you have co-authorship, you necessarily have co-ownership, right? Because but, you know, more than one author to a work, they all have an equal right to the work. And so when you have co-ownership, you also have mutual rights of possession and control, This means that the spirit realm has a vested interest in the practice and a proprietary right to the practice. So, And human beings cannot just unilaterally annul the rights of spirit beings. They can't do that. So that was the major revelation that I got. Um, And let me me give you an example here because sometimes it helps to move out of abstract into something a little bit more um, real. Uh, this is kind of a crass analogy, and I, in our private conversation, Millie and we had talked about this. God gave me an analogy of pole dancing. You know, we think, uh, as Christians and Jews in particular, that we can, by personal fiat, reassign the practice from Hindu deities to Jesus or Adonai. And I got this analogy as a real um, blaster to, to indicate that you can't do that. So let's say that I'm a Christian and I like pole dancing, which for those listeners who don't know about pole dancing, pole dancing is a very sexy form of movement. Um, It's something that you probably see in a nightclub, uh, you know, a gentleman's bar, a strip club or so. So let's say that I like this form of exercise and I want to also dovetail it with worship and I want to dedicate it to Jesus. Um, but I realize that there's some objectionable things about it, so I'm going to strip this practice of all of the trappings that are objectionable. Instead of performing it you know, to a bar crowd with leering men, I'm going to perform it to an audience of one, and that's Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, instead of wearing like a G-string and fishnet tights and pasties, I'm going to wear a long, flowing liturgical robe. And instead of uh, playing bump and grind music and the, the type of stuff, I'm going to play worship music. Moreover, I'm going to pause in between moves and I'm going to pray a prayer to Jesus and maybe recite a scripture to Jesus. However, all of the movements 
are going to be the same. I'm still going to have torso undulations. I'm still going to have pelvic writhing, pelvic thrusts. I'm still going to have chest shimmies. I'm still going to spread my legs and so on. So this is a very crude analogy, but this is probably the way God looks at Christians and Jews practicing yoga. You know, they think that they're doing something that's kosher, and it's really not kosher. It's really not orthodox at all. The Bible does liken idolatry to adultery. So um, I want to break down the poses and pose sequences so that the listeners can understand why this practice is you know, religion in and of itself. Okay. So let me jump in for one second. So at this point now we have, um, that whole idea of co-communion, co-fellowship, double dipping, if you will. And because it has a a spiritual co-ownership to it. And then if you decide to jump in on that, now you're in partnership basically when you're doing these things Uh, at, at this point, and this will Uh, sort of play into this. We had a few of our questions from our astute listeners and followers that were asking questions, for instance, concerning poses. Well, uh, if I bend over and touch my toes, I'm just stretching, but that's a pose in yoga. So what's the problem? Or uh, if I'm doing a downward dog, as it's called, or, you know, my son was sleeping and he was doing what they call a child pose. Does he, is he demon possessed? You know, it's, there's um, certain things that have that crossover, if you will. And so, Specifically, tree pose, downward dog were the one that were asked of us. And if you uh, want to kind of transition into that, uh, break that down for us. Uh, There's actually probably two questions embedded in that. One of them has to do with transnational poses, which are body positions that yoga shares in common with other Western movement systems. You know, some of them are more elaborate, like ballet and gymnastics and cheerleading Um, Other ones are more simple, like, you know, your basic sports stretches and so on. So there are some body positions that yoga does share in common with Western calisthenics. And your your classic forward bending position where you're stretching your hamstrings is one of them. Now, here's the issue. If you perform what I would call a transnational pose, that's a pose that yoga shares in common with Western systems. If you perform that in the context of a Western calisthenic class or secular movement system like ballet or gymnastics, it's fine. It's safe. There's no problem with it. You don't have a, you know, it doesn't get spiritually supercharged. However, if you practice it within the context of a yoga class, it comes under the auspices of yoga. And it, it basically, because you're doing it in conjunction with a whole bunch of other poses, it will become spiritually supercharged. I can also add that um, with these transnational poses, the way that you perform them is usually very different. Um, They will be performed one way in yoga and another way in a Western movement system. Like, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Let's take the splits, all right? The splits are like common to ballet, gymnastics, cheerleading, but also to yoga. In yoga, the splits are performed as a static pose. You're, you're holding it indefinitely. And sometimes you can add contortions to it, like a back bend or a bent knee or what have you. In the Western systems, uh, typically 
the splits are entered into and exited very quickly, and they may even be repeated. So, for example, like in ballet, you have a split leap. It's called a grand jeté. The the uh, ballet dancer will enter into a split in midair in a in a flash of a second. You know. Um, or the Rockettes, when they do their split kicks, they'll repeatedly do split kicks, but they're not holding the poses. So in yoga, if you were to do a split in yoga, what you are paying tribute to is a Hindu deity named Hanuman. Um, Hanuman is a monkey deity. It is the patron deity of physical culture and wrestling, very popular deity, kind of an action uh, hero in the Hindu mythology, and the split position actually commemorates a story about him. Uh, He was on a rescue mission, and he leaped off the edge of the Indian subcontinent over the Indian Ocean and landed on an island. And when he leaped, he leaped in a split leap. So this particular body position is in honor to the monkey deity. So if you're performing it in the context of a yoga class, you are paying tribute or homage to Hanuman. Um, Let's take another example of a transnational pose. Uh, This is cobra pose. This one in, okay, let me describe it. Suppose that you are lying belly down on the ground. Picture yourself in that position. And then you lift your chest off the ground. That is called cobra pose. It's performed differently in yoga than it would be in calisthenics. So in yoga, you actually push your hands into the ground to facilitate uh, a stretch on the front side of your torso. But in Western calisthenics, you don't use your hands. You basically engage your back extensor muscles, your paraspinals, in order to do a back exercise. And there are all kinds of variations on that, you know, flutter kicks, um, Superman poses, And again, the way that yoga approaches this pose is different from the way Western calisthenics approaches it. Um, In yoga, it's a static position that's held for a considerable period of time, whereas in Western calisthenics, it's uh, you enter into it and you exit it and you do it repeatedly. Um, So it's much more dynamic. But in yoga, if you were to do that particular position in yoga, you are honoring the snake spirit, because the cobra is a snake, you're honoring um, also Patanjali, the sage that I referred to earlier, the um, author of the Yoga Sutras, the one who's this hybrid being, half man, half snake. So now getting to the particular poses that you mentioned, um, I think you said tree pose and down dog. And was there another one? Yes. Uh, the Those are the two that were asked of us. The one I want to throw in, I think I emailed you a picture of it. It's where like someone is sitting cross-legged making that circle shape with their fingers. I, I can't pronounce the word, <laughs> but it's the most common one you always see. Yes. Um, that's a meditation pose. And we can segue into that whole topic. Let me uh, deal with tree pose first. Well, I can, do, I can actually give you a background. In terms of the individual poses, there's a whole repertory, and they are basically named after and shaped after and dedicated to uh, various aspects of creation, and then also Hindu deities, Hindu avatars. Avatars are basically incarnations, different incarnations of deities, um, Hindu sages, 
Hindu mythological creatures. But when you do, for example, tree pose, you are emulating a tree, and the idea is to become flexible but also um, stable like a tree. So, you know, the wind blows through a tree and, you know, the, the tree remains rooted or grounded. And frequently when you're in a yoga class, you'll hear the yoga instructor give instructions like that. You know, when we perform mountain pose, which is your basic standing pose, it's sort of like at attention. You are to be strongly rooted in the ground, stable and immovable like a mountain. Well, you know, that sounds great. You know, and those, are, those are metaphors that really kind of give you an idea of how to execute the pose. The problem, though, is that in the Hindu understanding, you are actually becoming what you're emulating you are you are mimicking it with your body you become the pose that you hold um, which is an invitation for spirits to um, you know enter in to you now that sounds kind of outrageous but when I start describing some of these poses tree pose seems rather innocuous what could be so harmful about emulating a tree but it's it is affirming the Hindu um, pantheistic philosophy that God is everywhere and in everything and uh, the practitioner of yoga is basically engaged in the art of spiritual shape-shifting you know, now I become a mountain, now I become a tree, now I become a dog, now I become a crocodile, now I become a tortoise, now I become a fish, um, now I become this sage, now I become this Hindu deity, now I've become an avatar, and so on it goes. Because they see um, all of creation as different manifestations of one supreme being. So... Um, now, if, if a child, for example, is naturally assuming a position like child's pose while sleeping, you know, that's not, that's not, um, uh, that's not yoga. Yeah, if you've learned it, let me put, let me say this. If you have learned it in a yoga class, it is yoga. <laughs> and, and, and all Westerners learned yoga from disciples of gurus or from gurus there was a uh, continuous transmission of this practice from one teacher to another so we're really all implicated in guru lineage ultimately because westerners had no clue about yoga until the yoga gurus began to disseminate the practice in the west Okay, so at this point, from more of a Western point of view, and because someone could still make the argument, but I'm just doing the poses, I don't believe in Hinduism or the manifestations, or how does this whole shape-shifting thing apply now in, in our sphere, if you will? So let's take a look at um, some of these sequences. I want to do, well, let me just do an overview. I want to take a look at two categories of individual poses. One of them are is the category of active poses. These are your acrobatic poses. And the other one is the category of passive poses. These are your seated meditation positions. And then I also want to uh, take a look at the pose series or sequences that form the backbone of the practice. There are two of them. The more popular one, the better known one, is the sun salutation or sun salute. And the less commonly practiced one is the moon salutation or moon salute. So why don't we uh, start with those? Uh, first of all, let me say this, that um, form reveals function. So the design of a thing basically gives you an idea of why it was created or what, you know, for what purpose. 
So I want to look at the choreography and show you that it is inherently religious. Sun salutation. This is translated from the Sanskrit Surya Namaskar. Um, Namaskar means to bow to or to salute, to do homage or obeisance. And Surya is the Hindu solar deity. So the name of that particular pose series is to bow to the Hindu solar deity. That's what it means. And if you look at the choreography, it incorporates a lot of forward bending movements that are really overtly worshipful in character. So you have like forward bending of the torso, which is bowing. You have forward bending in a, a kneeling position, which is genuflection. You have forward bending in a prone position, that's belly down, and that's prostration. And then you have back bending movements that are representative of surrender and self-sacrifice. And you have these in different positions, again, in the standing position, in the kneeling position, and also in the prone position. And then there are certain arm movements that express either offering something up to the deity or entreating the deity, enlisting the deity's help, you know, enlisting the deity's um, aid. So you've got the most classic um, hand position, which is the prayer hand position, and it's usually performed in front of the sternum, in front of the breastbone. And this is obviously uh, supplicatory uh, body position. And then the arm movements of, you know, raising the arms up into the sky, that's like a signaling for aid or comfort. And you can imagine, for example, a little child raising arms to daddy, or maybe a victim signaling for aid, a victim who's sinking in quicksand or drowning in water signaling for aid. So these movements are really not like any kind of standard Western exercise. You look at that and you say, ah, there's something different about this movement system. It is definitely um, worshipful in nature. It definitely venerates something or somebody. Aside from that, um, if you see someone execute the sun salutation over and over, you'll notice that they go up and down, up and down, up and down. There's a lot of standing up and lying down. And this is mimicking the um, sunrise and sunset, the zenith and nadir of the sun as it moves through the, the sky on its path. So this is sort of like the practitioner embodying the sun in herself when she does this. So that's an example of devotion in motion. And let's look at another one. The moon salute is another series or sequence of poses that forms the backbone of the practice. Like I said, it's not as popular as the sun salute, but anyone who is very proficient in yoga or who has been studying for a period of time probably has been introduced to this, and there are different variations of it. It's generally performed more slowly than the sun salute. It really depends on the school, but usually it is performed as a relaxing or cooling kind of sequence as opposed to the sun salute, which is supposed to be stimulating and energizing. What is, okay, so the moon salute also has the, the you know, forward bends like 
bowing, genuflecting, and prostrating. And it's also got the back bends that express surrender and self-sacrifice. And it has the same arm movements and hand positions like the prayer hands and reaching the arms overhead. But what's distinctive about this particular salute, what's unique is lateral positions and lateral movements. So you have side-oriented poses, uh, side bending, side shifting. And what these represent are the phases of the moon as it waxes and wanes, or the moon's transit through the night sky. So let me give you a couple of examples. One of them is called the goddess squat. And this is a uh, body position where your legs are spread apart in a deep knee bend, and your arms are spread apart. And the body is basically put into this shape of an orb or a globe. And the practitioner is mimicking the full moon when she does that. And then there's another um, pose. It's for those of you who are familiar with yoga, you start in the at attention position, which is called mountain pose. And then you do a side bend with your torso to one side and then to the other. And this side bending of the torso mimics the sickle shape of a crescent moon. And then you have certain side-oriented poses like triangle and half moon, and these suggest first and third quarter moon phases. So you, when, when the uh, moon is not quite full, it's either partially waxing or, or waning. And then lastly, you have a shifting in a side lunge. You shift from one side to the other in a side lunge, and this simulates the path of the moon through the night sky. So through this moon-specific choreography, the um, practitioner is identifying herself with the moon by shaping herself into moon shapes and moving like the moon. So she's embodying the moon, magnifying the spirit entity associated with the practice, and recruiting its involvement in her life. By the way, let's say you were a spirit that was associated with this. Let's say you were the spirit of Chandra. How would you feel if you saw a practitioner doing the moon salute? Would that attract your interest? I, I'd be humbled. I'd be honored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd be flattered. You'd be flattered. You'd be seeing your mirror image. You'd go, hey, I'm welcome oh, here. What a good looking guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we have to kind of like um, get out of our, you know, just human perspective and think about how the spirit realm would view such a thing. Active poses. This is a category of poses that are more acrobatic. And I may have mentioned that these are named after and shaped like and dedicated to beings from Hindu mythology. Could be Hindu deities or avatars or sages or creatures. And sometimes they even commemorate stories from Hindu mythology. They're kind of like a, um, an abridged reenactment. And of course, these poses are created not just to honor those deities and other beings, but to commune with them. Like I said, it's a spiritual art of shape-shifting. You are molding your body into a shape that resembles the being that you are emulating. And you're basically inviting that being to inhabit you. When you do this and when you're engaging and co-communing and all that stuff, you are basically becoming the altar by which these spirits are doing their thing. Is that pretty accurate? Correct, right. So instead of worshiping an idol outside of you, you become the idol. You shape your body into the figure that, that you're worshiping. You know, you know, there's that saying, you become what you behold. Uh, this is uh, 
little tweak on that. Uh, you become the pose you hold, and the pose represents a spirit being. Let me give you some examples. Um, okay, King Dancer pose, for those of you who are familiar with yoga. Um, for those of you who aren't, this is a standing balance, and one leg is extended to the back, and the one arm is holding that leg at the ankle. This is a tribute to Shiva. Shiva is a Hindu destroyer god, euphemistically referred to as the Hindu transformer god. But uh, the transformation that Hindu provides is, results in a total denaturing of what he's transforming. So it's really, he's a god of destruction. Uh, Shiva is also the patron deity of yoga, meditation, and the arts. And it, it, there's a myth concerning him that at the end of the cos, cosmic age, he's going to engage in a dance that will dissolve all of the elements in the universe and he will resorb all of those elements into himself. So that's what this pose represents. So when you do the pose, even though you think, oh, you know, this is really challenging me in terms of balance and flexibility, you're actually paying tribute to Shiva when you do that pose without knowing it, right? It's uh, stolen obeisance, stolen worship. Then there, there's a series that are really rather common, uh, the warrior pose series, warrior one, warrior two, warrior three. Warrior one is a standing forward lunge. Warrior two is a side lunge. Warrior three is another balancing pose. It's like a T-shaped position. The person's leg is extended to the back and the torso and arms are extended to the front, forming a T-bar shape. This is a tribute to an entity called Virabhadra. Virabhadra is an avatar of Shiva. Um, Virabhadra is the offspring of Shiva and was birthed in a very unusual way. Uh, basically, Shiva ripped out a lock of his hair, cast it down to the ground in fury, and outsprang Virabhadra. Virabhadra is a vengeful manifestation of Shiva. Basically, um, took vengeance on an enemy of Shiva, and the the backstory to this is really it's like a Bollywood soap opera. So Shiva had a wife and the wife went to a party and she was insulted by the host and she was so provoked that she committed suicide by casting herself into fire. And when Shiva heard about this, he ripped out a lock of his hair, cast it down to the ground, outsprang Virabhadra, this avatar that represents Shiva's vengeance he crashes the party, he slays the hosts, he slays all of the guests, and, uh, and that's what these poses commemorate. Warrior one, warrior two, warrior three. Then I'm going to give you one more example just to be nice and exhaustive. And remember now, yoga has a very large repertory of poses. So these are just representative, these are just illustrative of uh, stories of the poses and what they represent. There are um, three poses that are dedicated to another Hindu deity. Um, this Hindu deity is called Vishnu. Vishnu is the Hindu preserver god. And uh, incidentally, a lot of the modern yoga gurus were Vishnu worshippers, including Krishnamacharya. He's considered the grandfather of modern yoga. And his two protégés, BKS Iyengar and also Patabi Joyce. 
So Vishnu is a very um, popular deity in India. And this is a deity that transformed himself many times. He has more avatars than most of the others. So there are lots of different poses named after Vishnu. There's uh, fish pose, tortoise pose, and lion pose. Those are the three that I'm going to mention. Uh, These are all avatars of Vishnu. In other words, he transformed himself into a fish at some point in time, a tortoise at some point in time, and a lion. So when you do these poses, you're paying tribute to Vishnu. Now, Fish pose is a very simple pose, and it's performed in most yoga classes. Imagine yourself stretched out on the floor in the supine recumbent position. So your belly up, and you're arching your back. And the objective here is to stretch the chest area and the front of the neck. And this particular pose is often offered as a counter pose to inversions like shoulder stand. And it represents, in a very um, abstract way, the curvilinear design of a fish that's swimming. And it commemorates a flood myth. You know, at some point in another epoch, Vishnu transformed himself into a fish and saved mankind from this flood of cataclysmic proportions by carrying, um, you know, the few human beings that were in existence on his back. All right. Tortoise pose. This one is actually, when performed correctly, a very advanced contortion, but there are modified versions of it. And in the advanced contortion, you basically hook your feet behind your neck. Uh, And what you're doing is shaping yourself into the humpback of a tortoise shell. And this commemorates a myth in which uh, Vishnu transformed himself into a tortoise and he participated in a churning of a sea of milk. A very odd myth about the Hindu gods and the Hindu demons who were normally antagonistic toward one another, all of a sudden cooperating in order to churn a sea of milk and produce an elixir that would make them immortal. That's what the, um, that's what that pose commemorates. And finally, the, the lion pose. This one is where it's a seated pose. You're, you're distorting yourself into a lion's face. You either focus on a point at the tip of your nose, which makes your eyes cross, or you focus at a point in between your eyebrows, which um, rolls your eyes back into the sockets so that somebody looking at you would be looking at hard-boiled eggs, basically. And then you claw your hands and you stick your tongue out as far as it can go. This commemorates a a myth about Vishnu avenging himself on someone who mocked a Vishnu devotee. So he comes to the defense of a Vishnu devotee, and he transmogrifies himself into a lion and rips out his adversary's intestines. That's what that pose commemorates. So it's a lot of craziness behind the pose system. Some serious, strange bedfellows here. Yeah, exactly. Well, Hindu mythology is really wild. Well, most mythology is wild. I I don't think, uh, you know, the Hindus have a monopoly on craziness, Uh, but but their, their mythology is really bizarre, for sure. Very surreal. All right. So now we have at this point the breakdown of the poses. We have the active poses and Uh, What was the one before that? There was active. We have the sun salutation, the moon salutation, 
the active poses, and then there are also passive poses. Okay, let's talk passive now. Let's the because now this is important because oh, I sent you the pictures. So this is more my question. So tell me about this one. So the passive poses are a category of poses that are seated meditation positions, and actually, this is the original category of poses. Uh, if you go back far enough in time um, and study some yoga philosophy literature, they, the, ancient, the ancients were not performing all these acrobatics. That actually developed centuries later. Um, yoga was originally a meditation practice, so the only poses that you had to choose from were seated positions that were conducive to meditation. And um, again, form follows function. A thing is designed according to its purpose. So what we want to do is look at a classic meditation pose and think about the message that it is sending us. I want to take lotus pose. This is one that is uh, very prevalent, especially in Buddhist statuary. And you'll usually see one if you go to an Asian restaurant to eat. All right, so in this particular body position, the person is bound up in a human knot. The um, legs are crisscrossed on the lap like a pretzel. And in the most classic position, you have the arms wrapped behind the back. Each hand grabs hold of the opposite big toe. So the person is like literally straight-jacketed. Now there's another more common variation for the hand position, and that is to rest the hands on the thighs in the AOK position. And that actually has esoteric significance, that um, AOK position. It's where the thumb and the forefinger touch and the other three fingers are extended. Uh, this is what's known as a mudra. It is a wisdom or knowledge seal sign. And it is supposed to um, control or direct subtle energy in the body. So you have that position. And then in terms of focal point, the eyes are either shut or they're focused on the tip of the nose, which makes the practitioner cross-eyed, or they are focused on the third eye, which is an energy center point in between the eyebrows. That's a psychic chakra. And that would make, again, the person look like their eyeballs are rolled into rolled backward into the sockets and that would look like hard-boiled eggs to someone who's observing. So let me ask you this question. If you were to see me in this position, what kind of a message would that send to you? Am I available for conversation? Yeah, you're in your own little world at that point. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm physically indisposed. I'm immobilized. I'm put out of commission. I'm inactive, passive. I'm no longer a doer, an actor, an influencer, or a responder in life. I'm psychologically withdrawn. I'm disconnected from you, detached from the world. I'm distant. I'm interiorized. I may even be absent for all you know. I, you know, my spirit may have, may have transcended. So passive poses, these meditation positions are actually very non-relational. They're very impersonal. And in that sense, they embody yoga philosophy. And the, the particular philosophy is this, it's called non-dualism or oneness. And what it means is that there is no subject or object. There's no self or other. There's only one. And what this one refers to is the God of the universe who is impersonal, 
there's only one being in existence in the universe, and that is God. God alone exists. There is no self or other. There is no million and Karina. That's an illusion. The whole um, you know, duality of subject and object uh, is an illusion. All of this diversity of beings and multiplicity of beings, that's an illusion. There's only one supreme reality, cosmic consciousness, cosmic being, that's also known as Brahman. And so that's what these meditation positions are signifying or symbolizing. And if you look at somebody, you know, it's a kind of a very cold, austere uh, body position. It is definitely impersonal, non-relational. It does speak of non-dualism, no self, no other. This whole thing, so now we've talked about the the different salutes, the active and the passive, and now, listeners, I'm giving you a cross-section here, and and as I probably told you, this is going to be a very, very long interview because we've done a long time uh, thus far, and we got a lot more to go yet, so keep it locked here and go make some coffee, popcorn, whatever it is you need to do because I promised I was going to unpack this and give you the inside baseball, and I think we've done an amazing job thus far, but we still got more to talk about. Karina, the question that was coming up the most when I put this out to our followers and our listeners is, and now specifically to this interview, is sort of the Christian mindset, less the Western mindset, but Christian specifically. Now, we have a lot of questions. The biggest question that came up was, is there such a thing as a Christian yoga? Because people have told me that, well, I do the poses, but I just think about Jesus and worship while I'm doing it. Or um, is it a sin if I just stretch? And I'm like, no, it is not a sin just to stretch or exercise, nothing like that. But um, And for the reasons we've already outlined. But I have a an example where there is a, a ministry retreat that we sometimes, my wife and I sometimes participate in, where we travel to this uh, retreat for the weekend. And in a recent event, they started integrating for the women's version of it a time where there was a, a, a yoga down period where they would go out and exercise and do yoga. And they were planning this. And we said, no, you need to stop this right now. And uh, and they eventually pulled it, thank God, and somebody came to their senses. But there's been such a purveyance of this, not only in Western society, um, that picture that I sent you with that passive pose you were talking about, the meditation pose, was on a drink cup from Baja Fresh Restaurant. And I was looking at that going, man, this is this stuff's everywhere. But especially now, it's pervading its way into churches where there's church that do their small groups where they're having, oh, let's have yoga and Jesus or retreats are doing it or, uh, you know, it's just everywhere. It's permeating everywhere, which is why this bothers me so much. So in the Christian mindset, the question now becomes, and you can tackle these whatever in whatever way you're comfortable. You know, is there such a thing as Christian yoga? Is there such a thing as, well, I'm just thinking about Jesus while I'm doing it? Uh, you know, is it a sin to stretch? So on and so forth. Questions we hear all the time. So walk us through this because I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> yeah, this particular topic actually probably merits a whole installation in itself. We might want to think about doing that. So I'll probably touch on it briefly. Um, what's coming to mind right now, first of all, I think is the breach in our covenant with God, because I believe, if I remember correctly from my research, that Christian organizations and Christians were the first ones who welcomed, um, yoga. And what I mean by that is if, if you go back into history, particularly the early 20th century, when yoga was being developed, 
uh, you go to India, the YMCA in India actually introduced yoga into its um, exercise programs. And that's a Christian organization. It's not so much anymore, but it certainly was then. So they were not performing their function as gatekeepers. They did not have discernment. They did not have discriminating judgment. They let that in. So we're kind of reaping what former generations sowed. Also, if I'm not mistaken, I think that there were some Episcopalians who welcomed Vivekananda. He was one of the first yoga apologists. He was not actually a practitioner of Hatha yoga, which is the physical posture system, but he was a purveyor of yoga philosophy. And he was invited, if I'm not mistaken, by high church people to um, share so this is a multi-generational thing, but it's gotten a lot of traction now in our generation, and that's because there was, there was a lot of impetus. You know, now this thing is full momentum. Um, in terms of, you know, is there such a thing as Christian yoga? Well, yes, but it's not legitimate. Like I said, it's dual fellowship or dual communion with Jesus and also unwittingly uh, the Hindu pantheon of deities. Let me give you a little analogy here. Um, if I were to give you a gift, and it was something that I liked very much, I treasured, I cherished, uh, but it was something that you despised, that would indicate, I think, uh, my lack of understanding about your nature, your character, what you like, what you, you know, what you don't like, that sort of thing. This is a, this is a similar, this is an analogy, and this is very similar to what happens when Christians offer yoga to Jesus. They are giving what they treasure, what they cherish, what they value, but they're not considering the preferences of Jesus. And what I mean by that is they're, they're giving the worship certainly with good intent and most likely a clear conscience. I can't imagine anyone doing yoga without a clear conscience um, and offering it to Jesus. But they're not, they're not worshiping the Lord in truth. There's a verse in John chapter 4. Um, Jesus says, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So this is, this is the sticking point. Uh, a lot of Christians are worshiping the Lord in spirit. They're doing it with good intent, clear conscience, right motive. They really do want to offer devotion, but they're not doing it in truth according to biblical prescriptions and proscriptions about what constitutes acceptable worship to God. In the Old Testament, um, you know, God forbade uh, any kind of pagan worship. You shall not worship me on pagan altars. You shall not worship me in pagan ways. And yoga is a pagan altar, and it is a pagan way. It was developed by pagans. I think the real problem is this business of intent. We think that if we have good intent, that justifies us, that clears our practice. But it's not enough to have good intent. We have to actually obey. And that's what I discovered. Another thing that doesn't justify us is a clear conscience. When I was practicing yoga, I had no qualms or compunctions that I was doing something wrong. I, I absolutely had no 
guilt about it. I, I thought it was wholesome. I even considered it an extension of the healing ministry of Christ through me because it would help people take charge of their health, help them steward their bodies, you know, properly. Um, but this is what the Apostle Paul says about um, the clear conscience. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. And there's a, a similar verse in uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. Every person's path seems right and straight in his own eyes, and uh, he believes what he's doing is right, but God examines his work. God judges. Okay, so the next question that we have then is, okay, so we lay this out that, and this is my feel, is that probably not the best thing to be doing, okay? So people then follow up with a question, and, and speaking of kind of crude examples, I'll, I'll throw one out there as well. You know, I'm, I'm a married man, but if I decide to have an affair but just think about my wife and dedicate it to her, I don't think that's going to fly. And since, you know, we're the bride and all, and there's like this whole marriage covenant thing, just a thought out there, you know, do with that what you will. Okay, so here's my little crude thing to put in there. But next part is, is that when we talk about this in in the Christian uh, mindset, so if people are doing this, if people are going to yoga classes, a lot of yoga teachers, in fact, the, the next logical question is based on your experience and what you were talking about. Do you need deliverance right away? Do you just suddenly do a pose and now you're demon possessed? Do you have to repent? Uh, the whole deal relating to that, what what are like kind of the risks? What are the realities? How does that tie in? Yeah, that's a tough one because a lot of people are introduced to yoga through fusion classes, for one thing. Um, some people are, you know, taking an aerobics class, but it incorporates some yoga or they're taking some kind of a kickboxing class and it incorporates yoga, you name it. There's all kinds of spinoffs, all, all of these hybrid formats that are yoga plus something else or something else plus yoga. So when you're, when you're introduced to a fusion class, there's a problem of mixture, and let me give you an analogy that's not perfect, but the, the logic will help. If I were to hand you, Million, a, a, um, a solution, you know, a beverage, and it, it's about 99% fruit juice, your favorite fruit juice, whatever that is, and 1% arsenic, would you drink it? Is it organic fruit juice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course it's organic fruit juice. And it's, it's 99% organic fruit juice. Is it juice. dolphin friendly too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's sort of like the jelly bean. I'll give you 100 jelly beans, 10 are poisoned. Have at it. Right. And obviously that's, that's kind of a, an extreme analogy, but it makes the point that you're, what you're dealing with is a secular exercise, predominantly sec- secular exercise, but it's got something that's spiritually dangerous incorporated into it. And I, I say spiritually dangerous with all sincerity because I got demonized, okay? Um, so, you know, at what point could you get demonized? Well, you probably won't get demonized in a fusion class. I can't prove it, but what it is is it's an invitation to the spirit realm for more. It's an invitation to do business, to partner, to make a contract. So you are opening a door, definitely. Yeah, I have a saying that I, I kind of tell people. I say, you can swim in the ocean so long before you get wet. That's sort of how I, I feel about it. You, you might have a limited window, but I don't, I don't know quite how much you want to push that window. That's sort of how I would look at it. Yeah. And then the same thing is true. Let's say someone is just a drop-in visitor to a yoga class. 
maybe was invited by somebody else or is curious, you know, first timer. There's a whole spectrum, you know, of exposure to yoga. Obviously, we can sort of rely on the truism that the greater the level of exposure, the more likely a person can get demonized, the greater the risk of demonization. So at one end of the spectrum, you have the drop-in visitor. Um, Next, you have a beginner. Next, you have an intermediate level student. Then you have an advanced practitioner. Then you have a yoga instructor. Then you have a yoga life coach. Then you have a yoga guru, right? So that's the full spectrum. Um, My opinion, and it's only opinion, is that anybody who's an advanced practitioner or an instructor or who has been doing the practice for a long time and has incorporated it into his or her lifestyle is likely demonized because God is no respecter of persons and neither is the spirit realm. If I could get demonized doing gym yoga, anybody can. A secular humanist can, an agnostic can, an atheist can. Um, And if I offered up my gym yoga to Jesus in private, that means that suggests, and I still got demonized, that suggests to me that any Christian offering up a kind of stripped down version of yoga, just the posture system, offering it up to Jesus could get demonized, or any Jew offering up that posture system to Adonai could get demonized. And listeners just understand something when you say demonized that there's there's several levels of what this is. It doesn't mean you're going to get full on possessed with like, you know, pea soup coming out of you. That, that's not what it means necessarily. There's all these different levels of like just suggestion and influence and then oppression. There's different levels of this. So don't throw it. There's no black or white in that particular sense. So don't throw that all in one basket just so you're aware of that. But my apologies, please continue because I just wanted to get that out there. That's very important. You know, it actually serves the spirit realm not to manifest because if the spirit in or around a practitioner were to manifest, that would raise suspicions uh, that would basically expose the spirit, right? The spirit does not want to be detected. It can operate better if it's undetected because then it remains unchallenged. Uh, so most of the time, we're not going to be aware of this like I wasn't. I didn't have any paranormal experiences when I did gym, gym yoga. Uh, but, but I did have this, uh, a subtle level of oppression, and I felt like I wasn't making progress. Like I had um, a much greater capacity to give and I felt like there were a lot of dead ends in my life and I didn't understand it. So, you know, that, that caused me to cry out to God and say, hey, if I'm doing something wrong, please show me. And he did. Well, it's like you said too that, and I think you really summed it up with this, that this is the Trojan horse of religious beliefs because it never just seems to stop there, especially when people get into higher levels of it. And we said this on the phone the other day that if you're a person that would likely grab a hold of this and run with it and propagate the message and become a teacher and do workshops, and um, that's more very likely a target. And I think that if you're a person that, let's say you have a gift for teaching that could be used for the kingdom and for Jesus, they're probably going to try to hijack that so they can use it for their purposes because the talent and the skill is there, but they want it for themselves. Like you said, stolen is the same as authentic for them. So I think there's an element to that as well, that if you sort of know your giftings, be very careful with that because don't think for one minute they're if – if they would get up in Jesus' face about something, they're going to get up in your face too about something. So just kind of keep 
keep that in mind. So um, very, very sensitive to uh, what's your, your talent, your gifting, and your spirit as well. So that's just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, I agree 100%. I do think that um, all of these practices that we've adopted from the Far East are inextricably intertwined with religion, and we don't know it. And they come with spiritual attachments, and these spirits are hindering spirits, and they will prevent a person from fulfilling his or her divine destiny, his or her um, sacred purpose. That purpose will be hijacked. It will be diverted to the enemy's use. That person will become a PR person for the dark side without knowing it, of course. Yeah, someone explained it to me once. That I thought this was a great example. They said that yoga is the best form of Hindu evangelism ever created because people get in on it and then they start propagating it. And now look at it now. It's all around the world everywhere. It retreats all over the world. I was in Ecuador in November and I ran into people that were on the Galapagos Island doing a yoga retreat. And I'm like, are you serious? You came this far to do that? And I'm like, really? So it's everywhere now. Yes, and you have to ask yourself is this normal? Is this natural? Is this just a natural trajectory? I would propose that it's not because there are other systems of movement that are equally challenging, equally elegant, you know, like ballet or gymnastics, but it's never, they have never gotten the attention that yoga has. So there must be some kind of evil genius behind it. I mean, we have the National Institutes of Health researching this and Quite frankly, it, it you know in terms of the beneficial aspects of the practice, it's no better than any other form of exercise. It comes with um, the same you know risks. Basically, it actually has flunked I think one indicium of exercise, and that's cardiorespiratory fitness. I think uh, that's if I'm not mistaken about research into you know the beneficial aspects of the physical practice looking only at the physical practice but yeah it's it's bizarre really is it's bizarre yeah you know um and just uh maybe a couple quick lightning round questions on this so uh just to cover it for our listeners uh so ballet is pretty good gymnastics pretty good obviously exercise regular stretching uh, listeners don't get all stressed out about it okay keep your body healthy take care of your temple of course uh people ask a lot about pilates uh quick one or two sentences what do you think what are you f- you're feeling on pilates Okay, well, let me just um, make a proviso and say that I'm not an expert, but I do have an opinion. It's based on, I want to give credit where credit is due. It's based on a book called The Healing Gods, Complementary and Alternative Medicine in Christian America by Dr. Candy Gunther Brown. She is a professor of religious studies at Indiana University, and this book happens to be published by Oxford University Press, so it is, you know, first rate. And she um, discusses Pilates in here, not from a spiritual standpoint, but just, you know, background. The issue with Pilates, according to Dr. Brown, is, again, a matter of origin. Uh, Joseph Pilates was into yoga and Zen Buddhist meditation, classical dance, and martial arts. And when he developed his practice, he wanted to infuse it with yoga and meditation philosophies, and he premised it on the concept of a vital life force. All right, that's a metaphysical concept. That's actually a religious concept that there is this universal life force that we can harness 
for our benefit. And in as much as he predicated the practice on a life force, it is not just a physical practice, it is a metaphysical practice, and it will come with spiritual attachments. That's all I want to say about that. Yeah, I've studied that too, because especially on this topic, Pilates definitely comes up as the second in charge, if you will. And in my study on this, I, I haven't found anything conclusive, but what I will tell you is that Birds of a feather tend to flock together, as they say. And every time I see a yoga studio somewhere, Pilates is always offered right alongside with it. So something about the company you keep, I again, it's not conclusive. I can't say for certain, but there's just something about it I can't quite put my finger on. So that's just kind of my, my take on that one. Are you saying guilty by association? No, not at all. <laughs> because you're in trouble by being on the show if that's the case. <laughs> you got some, you got some problems with them. Karina, this has been such a good interview, and um, we're we really rolling a long time. What I would like to know is, um, so this is kind of the Christian mindset, what, what believers would need to know. We covered about what unbelievers would have to deal with. I was just looking on the socials where we posted everything, and that's generally the questions that people were asking. And, you know, they're legitimate questions. So, you know, do you need a deliverance if you end up in a class like that? Probably not, but it's just like anything else. You have to sort of be sensitive to your spirit, and you know when something's not right. You kind of know when... If your your discernment is firing up and you're just not feeling it, there's just something, you know, it's just a God thing, I guess. And you have to be, you know, be obedient and sensitive to that. And if you're not feeling it, don't do it. <laughs> Simple as that. Just looking through the questions, I think that's basically it. So, um, so for believers, just remember what it is you're getting into, what it is you're kind of co-laboring or co-fellowship, co-communioning with, if you will. You know, be very sensitive to that. As Christians, we like to do stuff. And, and let's be honest, we all do it. We all do stuff probably we're not supposed to, and we like to rationalize why we like doing it and why it's okay. You know, we, we've covered that on this show. And it's one of those things, it's part of growth, it's part of maturing, it's part of growing up in, in, in the Lord, and that's what we're all doing here. So if this is something you're dealing with, if this is something that you're maybe in the middle of or entrenched in or you're starting to feel stuff, yes, there is help. Yes, there is ways around it. Should you repent, which means just change your mind about it? Yeah, start getting away from it because if we're uncertain about it, I think it's better just to leave it alone. Why take the risk if it's not necessary? And that's sort of how I feel about it. With this show, and again, Karina did such a great job of outlining all this stuff for us. Karina, you're working on a book about this, right? Yes, I am. It's entitled, What's the Matter with Yoga? That's still in the writing phase. When can we expect this? Or do you want to tell us a little about it? Yeah, hopefully forthcoming this year. Um, it has been a monumental task for me because I'm trying to be very scrupulous in my research. And I'm actually delving into not just original classic yoga philosophy texts, but also reading what the academics have to say about it, the yoga scholars. Um, so it's involved a lot of critical thinking skills on my part and um, has been quite an obstacle course, actually, and I've been in progress for a couple of years now. Hope to finish this year. I do have a website by the same title, what's the matter with yoga.wordpress.com. Those are all one string of letters and no apostrophe in what's. What's the matter with yoga.wordpress.com? 
And several of the chapters in my book are posted there for free for people who are interested. I have a breakdown of the sun salute and the moon salute. I have a breakdown of yoga poses, why they're devotion in motion. I also have a page called Renunciation for those who have been convicted and are convinced that this is wrong and they want to break free of any kind of spiritual attachments. It's a rather exhaustive um, approach to renouncing various deities that are implicated in yoga, but I think it's well worth it. Uh, for those who are interested, they can go to that, that webpage. And uh, I wanted to say something. You had mentioned if you have discernment about yoga, you know, if you have qualms or compunctions, stop. That's great when people do. I was one of those people who did not have any qualms or compunctions, so... I'm going to ask the Lord right now to um, confirm this message. Anybody who's skeptical but open, I ask the Lord to confirm to you uh, the truth of what I've shared. May he present you with whatever it is you need, a vision, a dream, revelation, um, even a demonic manifestation if necessary. We should probably wrap there, and as I mentioned to you before, if you want more on this topic or you want us to break down a specific area, we also have uh, a whole other show we could plan on traditional Chinese medicine, which is uh, the first part of the deliverance we talked about earlier, and if you'd like that, we could break that down with some of the New Age practices you're seeing, because we were discussing that off the air as well. What I would like you to do, listeners, is would you... Uh, Karina, do you have an email for the listeners, by the way? Uh, yeah, it would be, what's the matter with yoga at gmail.com, excuse me, <laughs> gmail.com. Okay, listeners, what I would like for you to do is would you, if you're interested in this book and you want to grab a copy, I suggest you grab some and give it out to people because it's it's going to be, this This was a long, exhaustive interview, but this book's going to take it a whole nother level up. So um, email Karina when you get a chance. Tell her that you heard it on the 360 show about the yoga book and uh, perhaps Karina, you maybe send them like a free chapter for them to look over. But more importantly, get them on the list so that when the book is ready, they can be notified. So listeners, please email her and and, and start researching this and start getting a hold of this. Um, you know, people perish for lack of knowledge, so I suggest you up your knowledge on this thing. And um, we are really at the end here. Karina, any final thoughts, final words you'd like to leave with our listeners before we cut out of here? Um, how about a prayer? Re revelation, renunciation, break some chains. Let's break this altar once and for all. Go for it. Yes, Father God, we just thank you um, for those who have been listening intently. I ask you to assign mighty angels to each of the listeners. I pray, God, that you would totally break free um, your body. I pray that they would be delivered of any type of hindering influence, and I'm asking you to bring them into their sacred purpose, their divine destiny, uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to amen that one, too. And listeners, just remind you that anytime, visit dominionfire.com, which is where you'll find this interview. You can also check out our uh, YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash dominionfirechurch, uh, SoundCloud, Twitter. We're all out there. Everything's at dominionfire.com. Make sure you, you go there and share this message. Get this out to people. Whoever will listen, please get it out. Make sure you visit Karina's website, email her, check out on this book, and most importantly, stay vigilant because, you know, the enemy just kind of likes to sneak in when we're not looking. Next thing you know, he's everywhere, which, hey, here we are, right? So what's the matter with yoga? Hopefully we've unpacked that, laid it out for you, and given you a good case. But again, this is just the beginning of the knowledge. Get in on this and start researching it, and uh, let's start breaking these chains, and uh, that's basically all it is. So Karina, it has been an amazing interview. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for joining us. 
Thank you, Millie, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share the message. All right, listeners, you be good. Boom goes Yeshua, and we'll see you on the next one.